Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Leslie Duguid. Leslie is the founder, owner, and operator of Duguid Press, the first and only black female-owned fine arts screen printing business in New York City. Before starting Duguid Press, Leslie worked at the Gowanus Print Lab, K-Rock Screen Printing, and Powerhouse Arts. At Duguid, Leslie specializes in screen printed editions, collaborating directly with artists, designers, galleries, and publishers to realize print projects with incredible technical skill, accuracy, and absolute care. Leslie has printed for a range of celebrated artists, including Barry McGee, Taba Auerbach, Jenny Holzer, and Candace Williams, whose work was just selected to be included in the 2022 Whitney Biennial. Leslie's ethos is centered around a love for learning and experimentation through art, and a drive to affect change by amplifying more voices and ideas through screen printing. This conversation was recorded remotely. Leslie and I were both in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people. You know, in preparing for speaking to you. I was thinking about what introduced me to screen printing. And I have to go back to like, I was maybe eight or nine years old. Oh, good. Visiting family in Detroit, Michigan. And my aunt took me to this warehouse in downtown Detroit. She's like, I got to show you and your brother something. And we went in and in it was a what I came to learn was a t-shirt screen printing place. So it had all those, like, I don't know what they're called, like butterfly racks that you spin mm-hmm. and you drop the shirt down. And there was, there was um, printers pulling the ink through with squeegees. And then I remember there was like a conveyor belt that once it was printed, they would put the shirts on a conveyor belt and they went through a little oven to set the ink. Uh, and it was mostly uh, uh Detroit Tiger t-shirts. So like image, like a, a cartoon image of a tiger. Mm-hmm. And as someone who like grew up on cartoons and things like that, I was, I was enamored with the whole process and seeing how, it, how a t-shirt was screen printed. Uh, and then the, the t-shirt came out of the oven and one of the workers was like, Hey, you want to try it on? And I threw this shirt on and it was still piping hot. And I remember like holding in this like, <laughs> screech because I didn't want to scream in front of all these workers, but it like burnt me as I was wearing it. It was like this yeah. really kind of intense experience. 
It's funny they like had you just put it on right piping hot, but yes, yeah. also was, great memory too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Picture an eight year old kid in like a double XL. It was like a nightgown on me. Um, but I but I say I share that story because I'm wondering, you know, people come into printmaking a few different ways, and they're introduced to printmaking in a number of different ways. What introduced you to printmaking? You know, I got involved in just that shop life through going to the newspaper where my dad worked, the Kansas City Star. They had really large offset presses in their like newsroom building, like not that same space, but it was, you know, the door, right? It was a really confusing building for me as a kid to just get lost in. And, you know, my dad would take me around to meet his coworkers and say, this is my daughter, Leslie. And they'd, oh, how cute, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, show off the kid. I'm gonna go into the printing room. It's loud and smells weird in there. My dad said someone's arm got ripped off, so I think that's cool. <laughs> and I'm gonna watch him. And you know, when I eventually got to be able to decide what I wanted to do as an adult, you know, when you're in college or high school, even you have to make your life plan. <laughs> For some reason, you're forced to do that very young. And as a, you know, ambitious child, I was super into art school. My parents didn't know anything about it. And so I was um, doing everything I could to get their trust for my future to be an artist. And they eventually trusted me because I put in a lot of work to just take classes after school, get scholarships, NAACP had some like art thing that I got an award for um, and went to Minneapolis. Um, So all these little things that had me taking myself seriously eventually got me to be in art school, which was probably the biggest hurdle of my life, just being able to be accepted into that from my parents to pay for it also. Um, And that education really took off and put me into print shops of all kinds since then. So uh, it was only because I didn't have printmaking as an option or didn't have illustration as an option when I was in school. So I just took printmaking because that was the closest thing in my head that made sense and uh, dropping illustration for printmaking was a really big step that I latched onto since then. Yeah. Interesting. There's like a, like a symbiotic relationship between illustration as a technique and form and printmaking and screen printing. Cause they often rely on each other to, to exist. I can think of any number of like illustration projects that were created through printmaking or screen printing. Um, or even just the nature of reproduction itself, like an il- a, a reproduced illustration in a magazine or on a record cover or on a T-shirt has, yeah. has had to have been printed. Um, so that's cool that, that, I mean, you had to pick one or the other, but you're sort of toggling between the two. They're so related in my, in my mind. But there's a refinement to a drawing that really gets processed into reality that printmaking is good for. There's a lot of different techniques, of course, to get that done. And a lot of them take a long time and equipment and material. But, you know, to make something be finished on paper, screen printing allows you to expand upon that. So you don't have to keep it on paper. You can put it on this or that or surfaces of all kinds and we paste it to this and that. So I was really into the process effect as a technical um, advanced child. Like it just was really a lot further along than my sister who's four years older um, ever was. So it helped me to latch onto a process to make sense of my drawings in space that weren't 
just digital or like on a crappy piece of paper, not having yeah. to go through digital mechanisms to make things finished and complete. Uh, it was cool to see screen printing be the elitist form at the time, you know, of, of quick and done well, right? Yeah, I just yeah. got into that and didn't let go. For sure. You're, you are an artist and a printmaker, and you also run your own print shop called Do Good Press. I wondered if you could give listeners an overview of what Do Good Press is and the types of projects that you take on. Yeah, at Do Good Press, I do work with artists and uh, take their original artworks and process them into screen printed fine art editions. Uh, most of the time they end up screen printed fine art editions on paper, but I also do printing services that involve more um, fabrication so that if somebody wants a one-off of something screen printed, I do that as well, or just a screen burned less frequently, but that happens. Uh, the, the main thing I do with Do Good Press is to convert things that don't look screen printable off the bat to be something that is processed in a way that elevates the um, artwork to be, you know, multiplied but also like done well enough that it's got that like higher end quality the quality control of what i do with Duke press has um gotten me to a good reputation because i've been doing that for a long time with other employers um and through being in the scene right being in the know going to the book fair working at the book fair all the other things that you can do as a new yorker to have a culture and people trust you uh have, have and to get your my... name out there Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, making business cards early on was helpful um, and making those flashy and weird. This is one I just found recently. It's like bright orange and purple. Mm -hmm. um, but having having a, a style early on and uh, being a recognizable name was important. And now that that reputation has gotten me to a certain degree, it just keeps growing and tumbling into more and more clients and success and glad to be trusted. That's great. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that evolution because I know you started uh, printing shirts and tote bags and business cards like you just described, but now you're doing more fine art editioned work um, mm -hmm. and it's contract work, right? Like publishers or artists are coming directly to you to exactly. help and, and you help them realize their vision. Um, but it wasn't always that, right? And I, I feel like a lot of print shops start with like apparel or totes and then they sort of evolve or graduate into what you're doing now. Can you talk a little bit about that track? Definitely. The entry-level skills that you need to do t-shirts, tote bags, and things that are a little bit more um, accessible for the public is one way to just get in, involved in the process. And to a certain degree, you just want to advance and make sure that those things are controlled well enough to just get clients satisfied. Uh, the goal within what I wanted to do as an artist was always work with other artists. And, you know, if it just wants to be on a t-shirt tote bag, fine. But the longevity of that hard work, the labor of love that you put into making the screen, making a setup around that screen to then make these things real and done carefully enough, you know, you see the um, downfall of the apparel, wearable textile industry doesn't hold weight against what fine art is because you have this product made overseas most of the time that the raw material element isn't held to the same standard of, of what paper as a raw material could be. So you're kind of wasting all this extra labor on things that aren't getting back to the person who makes the item 
textile workers don't get paid enough to do this like very careful, precise work of making a shirt symmetrical. You know, it's, it can't be done 100% by robots. You know, there's a lot of human hands that go into making production um, for t-shirts cheap, right? Cheap labor is important. And I didn't want to be a part of that industry anymore when I saw that if you mess up a t-shirt tote bag, of course, there's always going to be misprints involved, which help with the ones that are better to be, you know, done completely great. But the the problem with textiles is that they, they offshed a lot of just fuzz, right? It's just made of all these little strings and fibers just fall off of everything and then get into other stuff. So that was not my favorite. I, I, you know, got snobbier as I got more experience in different industries of, you know, the print world and starting out in, in textiles and commercial printing was was one way that I could then see a problem with that industry and gravitate more towards something I was actually interested in. So working on paper, you just have this raw material that's made in bulk um, in places that are a little bit better as far as how labor is treated. The standards are just higher. And the other benefit is that paper lasts way longer. If you're wearing a t-shirt using a tote bag, you don't, as the user, get to see it. You're wearing it, you know, and you see other people wearing your work. At the book fair when I was, uh, you know, working at K-Rock then, it was such an honor to see so many mofos wearing things I had printed myself. And it's still an honor to see things that I had made out in the real world. But when people wear them, you get a degree of satisfaction. When people have them is something they can own for their entire lifetimes. That's a greater resource of uh, pride. So I changed my direction from just printing anything when I was younger, just getting experience in all these different shops to being more forward thinking with the longevity of what my hands and labor is going to be supporting through its entirety of the stages of the raw material I'm taking to convert into something valuable. Yeah. I also think there's value in simplifying the, the, the practices in which we take on, right? Like you could sure probably print on everything or any sort of surface or any type of project, but you're going to be spread thin both like on a technical level and also like on a conceptual level. If you can get really good at doing one or two things through this process, I feel like that's maybe a more sustainable way to go about it or definitely like probably better, better for your energy and output. Energy. Exactly. That's a big deal. You can yeah. charge more for things that are going to last longer also. So <laughs> the labor that's wasted on things that aren't made efficiently isn't quite worth the effort in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. There's an economic uh, component to all this too. We'll talk more about that when I, I want to get into like what it's like to run your own print shop. Um, you know, I know um, your father plays an important role in your in your decision to start your own print shop. Can you talk about um, the role that he? I mean, you mentioned earlier he he brought you to the the newspaper and, and saw printing, so there was an introduction there. Um, but his own work has influenced you and how and your outlook. Can you talk about your dad a little bit? Yeah, definitely. As a kid, he took me to an artist studio. I was maybe eight or six or young at the time. And her studio space was a really giant um, loft, right? In Kansas City, downtown, uh, really excited because I was, you know, grew up in the suburbs. So I really wanted, wanted to chase that lifestyle. And my dad, you know, wanted me to be a professional in any capacity. So if I wanted to be an artist, I really needed to support myself and be independent. 
Um, and it, his dissatisfaction with my direction as an artist at first really fueled me to be more professional at it. So uh, when I did get a certain degree of um, respect from him from doing well in art school and then graduating, getting jobs and employment, not in the field at first, but I was a hustler, right? You could see that. And now that I'm an adult, I was putting together my you know past and reconciling what had, I had been through and realizing I wanted to be more independent as a maker instead of working for others and control my income sources and have better ethical standards on what I was producing and work, who I was working with. So my dad, you know, wrote a book about my grandfather, our fathers making black men is the book. It really influenced me because it was about my grandfather, his dad, Lincoln, I do good, Lincoln, Isaiah do good, um, who went to Cornell University in the 30s. And in the 1940s, he started do good chemical laboratories and manufacturers in St. Louis. So he went through all this training and got advanced degrees in chemistry as one of the first black men in the United States to do so. Uh, at Cornell, at least, they only let one black person, man, in school at a time. So he had to wait a while for someone else to graduate before he was able to get access to this advanced education. And so from then, he also, when he graduated, was only offered positions if he was willing to pass as white. Um, and which he was not. So it, in any case, if, if he were to work there as a white passing person, he would get a certain degree of um, respect from all of his colleagues. But if he were to choose to be black and also work for these corporate, I mean, there is a corporate landscape, but it's the science field, chemistry and all that. Uh, he would have had to work the dangerous jobs that were like stirring vats of giant chemicals that couldn't sit still or they would explode and often killed the people who were who were working in those spaces. So he chose not to do that. And one of his influences was, let's see, I have this book in front of me. Carter G. Woodson in The Miseducation of the Negro was something I know he was uh, interested in as a student. So he moved to St. Louis in 1940s uh, to start Do Good Chemical Laboratories and Manufacturers, his own independent chemistry laboratory company, where he could work with people in his community, his neighborhood, and also drive a space for Black ownership to happen. It wasn't his goal, but it was something where if you make it, others will come and pop up shop next to you so that there's like hair salons, there's other places all wanting and ready to and willing to use my grandpa's products in their stores and uh, stock it on their shelves. But he also had my dad and, and um, kids in the neighborhood go around selling things door to door, you know, so he was uh, a hub for other people to come and go. But the education he would give to everyone who stopped in was always around chemistry, right? He just wouldn't stop talking about chemistry. I remember as a kid, he'd be on and on. Anyway, <clears throat> Listening to my dad's, um, I mean, reading his book, listening to him as a kid and growing up, I was really wanting to pay respect to where I came from, where I'm going, and Do Good Press came out of that sentiment. So I'm, I'm glad to be able to pay it forward and respect the past. I'm the fourth generation LD, not learning disability, but do good, right? With an mm -hmm. L as a first. Um, so yeah, this is my way of uh, continuing the legacy that was started by my grandpa. Yeah. I mean, as you're telling me that story, you know, I couldn't help but feel like there's a, uh, you know, a, a tradition in a way of like starting a shop 
and doing the work and having that autonomy of like being in charge of the shop. Um, and here you are running Do Good Press. It, I mean, it's not chemicals. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there's inks, which <laughs> have chemicals in them, but, uh, um, I mean, that's incredible to like, to like think of that, that line in that family arc right there. And, um, I mean, bravo. And also it should be said that you're the, the only, or the first black female owned fine art print shop. I mean, that, that, that follows the, some of the traditions and, and, and stuff that maybe your grandfather were, were the trailblazing that he was doing too. Well, I mean, we're both minorities, right? As black people in America, we're getting to be at that point where the minority shift is happening, right? White America is decreasing because we're just browning out all over. And that's a good thing. Globalization will make that happen no matter what eventually. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're not going to let those fringy minorities, I'm in that category, be pushed out of what the economic impact is uh, out there. So I'm, I'm happy to, to push my way forward, but also do it in a, in a space that I'm not going to waste my time trying to fit into the box that wasn't meant for me. I'm just working at a, a level that I feel is comfortable and my grandpa did the same, just moved spaces in order to make it make sense. So, yeah, I wondered if we could talk about uh, printmaking as an amplifier and how it amplifies the artistic vision of an artist, uh, because you're you're making more than one image. I guess that's what I mean by amplification, right? Definitely. Um, this, this idea of a multiple. I don't know. Is there is there an idea to latch on to within that for us to talk about? Oh, for sure. I mean, I have to really zoom in on an artwork if I am to make multiples of it, even just to process it, to make a matrix and then set up that matrix to make more than one of it. That whole thing has to be economically viable in order to just make the next part function. So the key on the lowest common denominator in order to amplify any small thing and to be multiplied has to be making sure that the threshold is uh, able to to then just be able to carve out the screen and make the form and do everything else. That's just technical how screen printing works with light and all the other resources that you need to just make one thing and then stencil it out to make more of it. But um, amplification, making a single thing into more than one, right? You need to have a basis for collectors to want more of something. So you have to be popular enough as it is to then find a market for these things to then get into the end consumer, right? Get get into the pocket of whoever is going to. But I have a, a an issue when, when it comes to just making them in a space that I can afford. So amplifying things to a certain degree can be done, but at a certain cap, right? I can't make things unlimited in the 150 square feet that I'm able to afford at this point. But, you know, when you do get into the business of making multiples, you have to have quality standards in place too. So there's a limit and there's a maximum, there's a, a minimum and a maximum that I have to stay within. Wiggling within that amplification is uh, great to communicate with artists and people about what I'm capable of. But yeah, making more of something is important. Making them done well is even more important so that they can have an increased value after they leave my space. But yeah, that that emphasis on the individual has to be there and making sure that everyone is 
on the same page of what I'm capable of so that we can all like, I don't know, enjoy the end, I guess. Yeah. I want to dig a little bit deeper on process. You know, for me, there's such an element of dissection in screen printing, particularly when you're coming in with an existing image that needs to be pulled apart, you know, that dissection, figuring out all mm-hmm. the layers and each color gets its own treatment or separation. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like for you to receive an image, like, like an existing image from an artist, and then you're tasked with dissecting it and, and pulling it apart in a technical way so that when you print it in a certain sequence, it comes back together just so. I mean, that's, yes! that's, that's such a magic trick. Talk about that a little bit. Everything seems magic if you are coming from a point that is a normal viewer ship relationship to an object. So like you as an individual can like experience an artwork and uh, say, ooh and ah about all of its glory. But me as a printmaker have to, I have to just reverse that perspective. I have to sit on the other side of that object and know about how it was constructed just by looking at it. So talking with the artist about what their intention is helps, but really understanding just the zoomed in effect of, of what those layers are. Sometimes you can see the underpainting, paying respect to that. Um, you can see Connie Valesi's print behind me has a little bit of an underpainting behind it. So knowing that those layers need to stack in a certain order. kind of. I was explaining this to a student somewhat successfully yesterday, maybe, that like if you have a key layer and outline around something, then you would think of like filling that in and then putting that key layer on top of it. But if you're, for instance, going to print on glass or a surface that's transparent, you would have to reverse that order. So you would print the key layer first and then other things that would fill into those lines, kind of like a coloring book. So I have to just take a different perspective in time, right? And backtrack to where the artist who originated this image came from and kind of layer things in an order that makes sense for their, like, order ish, but more so just understanding how colors function and having a newspaper background, right? I I feel more comfortable talking about these things and writing about them and understanding how chemistry functions within all that just because my own family history. So reversing that order always has to stem from understanding cyan, magenta, and yellow. Our primaries that we have in our substantive color world are different than the screens that we look at for digital resources. Those are light-oriented color relationships, so they don't order in the same way, despite the fact that I'm planning and organizing all this with the tools of you know, Illustrator and Photoshop, understanding that the printing relationship is different than these tools and the way that they're output I have to really put on a lot of hats in order to fix that. And, you know, I came from a background of printing and that doesn't add up to the same relationship as separations. Like doing the chroming for a print uh, is a whole different person's hat. So I I haven't been doing that as long as the printing part. But when I was just printing, I really had to get good at color and matching things to be specific for separations I didn't make. So there was a little bit of a blind approach when I was doing it back then. And now I have a lot more knowledge on on the full picture of how a print is made. Having um, day jobs at the same time when I was starting to do separations helped because I could see how other print shop owners went through it. Like Carl at K-Rock was super mathematical and very, very precise about um, where things sit, how colors will lay and matching Pantones. 
Um, and, you know, I have to do it for artist approval, too. So I'd have to talk with the artists in these professional spaces about what their expectations were in any shop. Alexander Henrici, doing fine art printing, hand-painted all of his films. He had someone else just do the separations by hand, which is ridiculous, extremely time-consuming. I applied for that job years before I actually started printing for him. He didn't respond to my email, which was fine. My first, just real quick, my first, uh, my first screen print project I ever did. Uh, was was hand painted films. Um, Ooh, just trying to line it all up. It was it was quite the quite the effort. Anyways, tools help, right? Like it's yeah. it's one thing to know how to do it by hand, but it's another thing to use technology that we've got as a resource to your best advantage. And yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. thing that artists are good at. I am realizing how important that is as a business owner. But having experience while I was having experience as a business owner while I'm working for other businesses, I know is a, a not normal, right? You're, you're usually encouraged to not take those things you're learning on the job and applying them to your own economic benefit, right? That's bad. But it's really the only way to start a business as a person who knows what they're doing. You know, you can't just start out of the blue and expect to be good at it. So anyway, um, Luther, right, does it in a whole different way. Luther Davis at Powerhouse Arts. Uh, but by then, I had years and years of experience and was a little bit bored some of the time when I'm just expecting to do the printing part. So there were jobs where I was uh, doing Renee Green's uh, editions, for instance, doing the separations for those. Relatively simple, but still very complicated because you have to know how colors will sit on top of each other if they're meant to vibrate or do something that's chromatically not uh, possible with screen printing. Uh, dropping out layers to make new ones sit on top correctly is uh, difficult as well, but... There's so much precision involved with getting registration to line up just so, getting the color relationships to work accordingly, sequencing things, that dissection we've been talking about. At the same time, I know an idea that you and I have talked about before is this idea about winging it, just like yes. kind of going for it and learning on the fly, which is sort of antithetical to the idea of precision. Can you mm -hmm. talk about how free jazz and winging it in the studio um, and maybe just like learning on the fly, like taking on a problem that you're not quite sure what the solution is, but through the act of doing it, you arrive at the solution, which is a form oh, of winging sure. it, right? Can yeah. you talk a bit about, you know, I think it's so fascinating that you're involved in this very precise, controlled, technical way of producing an image through screen printing, yet you're still finding ways to wing it. I'd love to hear about that a little bit. It's cool that there are so many different people out there, right? I have a lot of different clients that work extremely different. So it's really never going to be my job to tell someone exactly what is going to happen at the end, right? Like I can give someone expectations on what I think will happen. And that usually works out decently well. But the winging it part is every time, right? I think it'll work out like this, because I've done it like that before. And technically, like the way that this process functions, like we kind of can't go wrong, right? Like there's a certain degree of that. But having the winging it part be like, worth it to me had to make sure I had a safety net behind me, which was always these day jobs for years and years, right? I only started doing Do Good Press independently without having other jobs to fall back on in 2020, right? Mid 2020. So before that, I didn't have to charge all that much for my services because I had other economic things that didn't make it so not worth it if I didn't meet people's expectations. 
but I never really dropped the ball that bad. I don't think I, and, and if I did, I would refund people a little bit, you know, so it, it would still be worth it for my time to be there and all the other paper material costs to be covered. But the winging it part was cool because I could experiment. I was encouraged to do what I knew how to do. And I teach my students that too, that there's a lot of different ways to process stuff, but there's even more advanced ways to do it. And things that are more traditionally printmaking and screen printing specific. Sometimes it's not like P's and Q's okay to do CMYK conventional halftone dots on everything, right? You don't want everything to be processed that same way, but to at least have that as an underbase and add to it can be a little bit safer of a process. So I've learned how to, how to do things in a way that starts safe and then I can add to it because I'm really precise with registration and indexing screens to all have the same you know placement for these matrixes to sit but I yeah just don't charge as much when I don't know I can do a good job or not and sometimes I surprise everyone by doing a way better job than what I charged for so that's <laughs> shooting myself in the foot but now I'm a little bit more confident and can charge more higher prices for the services that I can provide because it's just less unsure now right I guess the goal too through through this sort of going for it process is that things become more predictable over time. The more projects you do, the more kind of experimentation that you do and test driving, like that just gets built into your, your, your skill set, And then things inherently become more predictable so that when that registration issue or color issue pops up, you, you have, you have that information and then experience to fall back on. It's important to know when to stop and fix it also. Like there's yeah. just things that happen where you can't expect that that's the way it'll turn out. And so it's just good to stop, reassess, look at it from a different point of view and then understand that there's a way to fix it usually or yeah. order more paper. <laughs> uh, let's talk about a recent project. Uh, you know, you shared this really incredible image of a print by Candace Williams and it's, called the the triadic ballet and is it a still from a a video that she made do you know what the where the the image is sourced from yeah 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 candace williams has a really great show up at 52 walker and having studio visits with her and ebony haynes from the gallery were immensely helpful we could have done anything and it was great to be able to have a conversation in the studio before knowing what was going to be printed Um, just so that we can all talk about the whole show and the process of what an edition would mean. So taking a a still from one of the videos in this space was something we ended up doing after I did a couple proofs of some other things that could have been additioned, but we wanted to take an approach that would uh, be, I don't know, technically respectful to what was going on in this space, but also give something so temporary as a moment of a video still that's like moving and constantly changing. Um, it, you know, the whole thing, the whole show is called a line and the videos that are, you know, in this space, like all stacked in, uh, among this foliage that she's created, uh, have the, this dancer moving in this space on this grid that is paused at a point when all three dancers are in the middle, but there's some positioning stuff that happens that color changes go through when the dancers are in different parts of this grid that's on the floor. And so pausing everyone in the middle and getting to this space that's um, 
conclusive for all of them to have like a direct line through the whole thing was really great to pay homage to the A-line perspective. But I, I really love the way that this print has cyan, magenta, and red, right? It's, I mean, sorry, the primaries, we have yellow, we have red, and we have blue, all very well represented. But the way that they're all colliding in this space really makes you have to see the printmaking backflip that I had to do to make them all like individually stand out, but also together uh, make a new form. So it was great to work with them on that. And I'll describe the image uh, briefly. It's it's a, a figure or three different figures. I think it might be the same figure, almost like a sequence overlapped right in the center of, of the picture plane. And those are printed in blue, red and yellow, the primaries, as you mentioned, but it's on a black ground, the paper is black. So there's mm -hmm. a there's a real graphic pop to the colors. It's almost like, like a neon light in a way, uh, you know, sans the actual fluorescent, just the way that the color is resting on the black ground. And then framing the figures are some graphic lines that are almost like this vanishing perspective or ground that they're on. So there's this graphic element uh, just below the figures. And if you, if you like stand away from it, it's abstracted. You can't quite make out what it is. It just seems like this form. But as you get closer, you realize that there's a figure in movement and the figure's uh, back is towards us. We can't see their face. So there's a little bit of mystery there. Um, and then it sort of fades into the horizon, into the, into the, the back of the, of the black page, which is really sort of um, evocative in its own way. I loved working on this. It was very difficult, but super fun, extremely yeah. satisfying, but great description. Also, it fades from like the, the grid that uh, these figures rest on fades from like yellow up front to kind of just gone in the background. But if you look mm -hmm. closely, it transitions to just like deep, deep blue kind of it, it, it's got like a weird color transition too that happens, um, which if you're generating something to be a gradient, that's not a split fountain, it's really difficult to make it not look like singular colors. Um, so Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, the things that you shared with me is that this is an 11 color screen print, Yes, uh, but to the untrained eye, it just looks like three. I mean, I think that's a, another part of like the illusion and technical capacity and how color works, that there's so many colors in there, but they present, at least on the quick, they present as only three, but there's so much minutia within there. I love it so much. Yeah, there's a difference between, under, and it's, it's yeah, having all these three things rest on black ground made it so that, yes, there's a white field to lay down first and have all these other things build on top of it. But I started it out with just a CMYK process so that I could just block out areas that needed to be pushed further. Um, and yeah, having any kind of actual space to work and then grow from uh, made it a lot easier to start out with a proof. So I did uh, actually scale. Eh, it was a little smaller than this. The page was bigger, but the image was smaller. And the resolution of the first image was a lot less so. So understanding that the, the like higher resolution quality I get could really carve out more details. Um, going back and forth with Ebony and um, Candice about that was great to see the difference between something that's like semi-low resolution screen capture from this video to something that I could actually get a lot more details out of. I wouldn't know that that's the way I could pull them out unless I started with this lo-fi thing. 
but um, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of experience with this type yeah. of work. I just didn't know if it was possible. So I'm glad I could fiddle with it to make it work. That wing in it again. Yeah. I mean, but there's also like two, <laughs> yeah. three, two different types of metallic yellow in it. So it, it doesn't yeah. sparkle the same way it does in real life. But you have to like get the right type of metallic to also print through the like halftone that I've put through everything also. So it's like really weird and tricky. And that's an example of, of one way that a print project comes to be, right? The, a gallery will contact you um, with an artist in mind to do a project, right? Um, so the gallery sort of acts as the publisher. You act and operate as the printer. And then the artist is the artist who makes or is is sort of like dictating how they want it to be. And you just help yes. them realize that, that collaborative aspect of it. But I imagine there's also instances where artists come to you directly and need and want your expertise and talents uh, because they don't have them or they don't have the um, technical setup, the, the you know, to, to, to screen print themselves. So you, you work directly with artists too. There's not always like a, a publisher involved. Is that, is that accurate? Correct. Yeah. When there's a publisher, you're a lot more likely to just sell them all and not have to deal with the quantity of prints to handle individually. If you're an artist, you kind of just want your focus to be on your own studio practice and not this new system of prints to deal with if you're not like used to that. So publishers are really great. Galleries are really great because they also have a network of people to purchase things at different price points. So it's good to have prints always if you're a gallery so that you can bait people, you know, and say, hey, if you buy this, you got that later. So this is yeah. going to be valuable at this point, but more so later and collecting this artist period is a good yeah. move, you know, so they schmooze a lot better than artists care to. Um, everybody has to do that to a certain degree. But the, you know, working with artists as individuals is communication simpler because we can, as artists, communicate visually with things that don't always like take a lot of words that I'm not used to saying. But um, when we're talking about like color and the translation between things being shared digitally to how I output and produce them in real life has to be, yeah, a, a weird learning curve, but also um, really, really specific to each individual piece. And every artist has a different way of describing what they want, giving me files in different formats and, and weird ways that don't always like add up to be useful for my systems. So it, it's, it's a process to work with anyone, but artists at least have access to the raw materials, right? You don't have this middleman to go through. You know, while we're talking about color, let's, let's get a bit more granular about it. You know, the dynamics of color and, and how color operates on an emotional level for for us as viewers and what it can evoke you know there's such there's such power in color um, and I know color is an important thing for you as a printmaker but also an artist what are the sorts of things that you like about color and and maybe what what do you hope color can do for a work of art or for a print oh it does everything hugely everything there's contrast and value scales and things that we do with our rods and cones chemically to just translate things in real life from our eyes to our brains. But the additive versus subtractive color systems, I've been doing a little bit more research on this semester, especially um, to communicate it with my students partially, but also to better understand what's actually going on myself. I was a little afraid of um, pushing color boundaries as a younger artist and making my own work in my studio spaces and various places as a, not a kid, early in my twenties, right? 
but now that I'm doing work with other people, I really need to be more uh, cognizant of the functions of color and how they can actually push the piece to be further developed than what an artist will give me so that things might turn out a little bit muddy because their paints, you know, may not be as spectrum correct as, as what inks are kind of made to be formulated around. But the, the difference between what things activate in light versus the way they're kind of like shaded when they're not lit right, it's huge. So having like access to a backyard where I can just take things out and see what they look like in the sunshine. In natural light, yeah. Exactly. Way different than anything produced, you know, under under regular lights. But that way I can have, so I've been observing light a lot more in this pandemic era. I've been able to like take things and use them in my own space and have thoughts about them. But I see a lot, I'm, I'm, I've been training myself to have synesthesia a bit. I try to just have an emotional connection with feeling out the direction that things need to go in. So if a, if a yellow, for instance, is warm, is like warms and cools of primaries and a spectrum that goes around each one so that there's a fade between colors as they connect and transition between blue and red, you know, you get purple, but there's also like orange and, and other things on the outside of all these. They're all somewhat connected unless they're in opposition. So those opposites really have to have nothing in common and singularing out colors to be screen printed, you really can make things very specific and additive and drop out things behind other things or block other things out so that those um, meeting points can be extreme in ways that are attractive. But I wonder about how they age over time because if you look at things that have been exposed to too much sunshine, you know, and it's lifetime you know if we look at old photographs for instance they kind of lose the warms the warms fall out first and i wonder if there's some and i know that you know light is in constant motion it never stops its energy and the surface of things that are pigmented on their substantive level are chemically activated with light so the amount that they absorb is what they radiate in a way the things that they radiate are opposite than the things that they absorb so that additive and subtractive color system is always in play i just like get so much out of the way that these systems work that it allows me to then make further advances in how i mix colors to make sure that like if a yellow needs to not be warm it needs to be electricity then it needs to have a little bit of a cool factor in order to then like get what the artist is trying to do further develop. So I have to push what an artist already does to make it cool yellow cooler, warm red warmer, um, use Pantone books to understand what is actually going on because it's hard to really pull those apart in your own head. But if you have those Pantone guides and it tells you this has warm red in it, this has magenta in it, this has like rubine in it, um, those different those different systems are, are manipulatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many variables with color, right? A big one being light, like lighting conditions will, will change how a color is landing and operating for the viewer. Um, and the other thing is lived experience, right? Like our experiences inform how we see color too. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating all the psychology around color and what, what it can And we might about. all be seeing different colors too. We might not all be seeing the same thing is the problem, but it's relative. It's a world that we live in. And so keeping those things relatively 
even, right? Their distribution is mathematically separated in my head, but the amounts of warms, cools, reds, green, whatever has to be uh, calculated to to equal out to look right. And I never know if it's going to look right until I'm done with the planning stages and done with the printing stages of what I expect. And then I have to add to it a lot of the time. So I'm never finished with something when I think it will be done. Same with Candace's edition. It seemed finished to a certain degree, but I had to add an extra black on top of that black paper to really give a shadow effect to what was going on within the figures pushed further beyond so yeah colors have to lay in a certain spot but then darks and lights have to then do their duty also so it's it's a lot of moving parts to situate but that's really the best part of the job and i can't teach that to anyone without having people next to me to show them what's going on with it and students do things willy-nilly access to materials and stuff is hit and miss like they've got stuff at school but it's expensive no matter what so it's not quite worth it to experiment unless you have a feel for what you're trying to work with having experience working in shops helped me develop these tastes but then you have to really trust yourself to make the right decisions when i'm paying for all the things myself now you know so it's hard to make it worth it that's the cost of winging it sometimes you know yeah costs money (laughs) you know we're still in the midst of this god-awful pandemic and self-care is so important for all of us both physically and mentally I know for me, I can't be an artist all the time. I have to have side projects or even have these conversations as as some sort of um, recovery period or way to get outside of my own head. Um, I wonder what sorts of interests or things you have in your life outside of the studio that kind of balance you out. How do you take care of yourself? Yeah, studio life fixes itself to be self-contained, you know, so kind of just like going outside to just clean up the yard and take deep breaths and sunshine is helpful because then I can manage my swing and then swing on it and have some like peacefulness with nature a bit but um yeah working and teaching is also kind of like self-care I can communicate with people that aren't in my tiny tiny space but I you know otherwise just go crazy working all the time I just don't really have breaks uh and that's taxing to relationships, but I feel a lot more um, capable of growing my business now. I just don't have space and time to do much self-care. It's, it's, it's hard. It doesn't feel good, you know, but I do feel a lot more confident as a business owner, if that's any consolation. It is for me. Financially, it's a lot better, but I can't slow down. And when people ask me to do stuff, I'm not going to say, I got to take a two week vacation, you know, hold up. I got to, you know, take care of myself and come back, you know, but I still, you know, have to spend a day a week just cleaning, doing my hair, making food, stuff like that. So taking breaks to do that daily, taking mornings to take deep breaths and just not be in that process helps a lot. But, you know, that's when people bug me the most. I really like taking mornings to just be alone and uh, space out what I'm supposed to be doing so that the rest of the day can fall into place as it needs to. I like I like this idea of the swing, too, in the backyard. I can picture you in that swing, just kind of spacing out and thinking and it's the best. Uh, you know, having time to yourself. Uh, just that movement even probably is therapeutic in a way. That's it's from rhythm. Yeah, yeah. I used to do that a lot as a kid, too. So it's like brings back a lot of memories. Yeah. I know you've, you've had opportunities to work with all sorts of different types of artists uh, to help make their prints. Is there a dream project? If you could print with anyone, um, 
they don't even have to be alive anymore, but is, is there an artist who, who, you, who you'd love to work with? I'm sad I didn't get a chance to work with Faith Ringgold when I had the opportunity to at Powerhouse. I ended up passing up being able to be on press for her because I bought tickets to go to Miami. You know, I went to Basel instead that year. And that was cool. Like I made connections to get me jobs in the future and stuff. But, you know, I know it's she's old, right? We're not going to be around that much longer together. I really respect where she's come from and, and her huge, huge body of work that she's created over the years. Um, being able to be experimental and communicate that when she did come to sign at Powerhouse, uh, I was introduced as like, Leslie knows how to print on fabric. She's going to die, you know? And that was, that was like a, a good conversation to begin with, but I'm not going to steal someone away from their like print shop. I just kind of regret not staying put when I had the opportunity to work with her. Um, cool. But I mean, that would be great, but I really like working with people that know nothing about printmaking so that when I do introduce it to them, they can have it from my point of view. And that's nice to see. What about what drives you forward? What keeps you happy when you're satisfied as a printmaker and an artist? Cause I think all these things are so incredibly important um, in, in our daily and weekly lives. Um, finding happiness in the work that we're doing or outside of the work we're doing in some capacity. When I frame it like that, when are you most satisfied as a printmaker and as an artist? Ah, that's a good question. It's also great to have spoken with you months ago when we were talking with, um, we were talking about Sky Volomar's edition and seeing that full circle from its beginning stages. I think I was like panicking about it right before and you came over and maybe saw some proofs that, looked good at the time, but when you actually see the final edition, you're like, that's just light and jet and night and day. This is way better. But that like uh, surprise moment of having an edition turned out great, especially after putting it away for a while and having space and time away from it and bringing it out again is like hugely like makes the cycle continue. It just makes me want to put those things I learned from that into new stuff. And I often don't take proper notes about things, but I really did with that edition because I was putting it together so that it could be displayed for vans. And the, the, some of the process work that went into that edition is up at the van store in Williamsburg. They offered, you know, part of the space to just show my process and I was really happy to do that. But now that I look back, I'm like, those are perfect notes to just keep for every edition so that I can share that with students and uh, people that are interested in my process. It's specific and oftentimes hidden from the public so that, the price will make it worth it. So you don't really have to know about how things yeah. were made. We just see the final product. We don't see the process often behind it. Um, I mean, you see you the final product, back, right? You'll get it back from the van store eventually. Oh no, they bought it. I don't need oh. that one. Oh, okay. I, I'll get, I'll get my like archive stuff back, but okay. um, they do whatever they want with the print. That's like the creative drinking agency is the people who put it together. So they were really great to just cool. buy one and I can keep my own like printer's proof. Yeah. But yeah, and that, that's what pricing is for. You don't have to know about how things were made because there's a price that says pay this and it'll equate to however it was produced. And, All the time and make it that worthwhile. went into it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But I agree with you. That surprise through process is, is something to chase uh, in the artistic pursuit. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you on that one too. Transformation, hugely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any cultural recommendations for listeners? Maybe there's a book or a film or a work of art that you've seen that we, we should check out. I'm 
reading Dawn right now by Octavia Butler, and I really love how uh, futuristic it is coming from an author who made, wrote the book, I think, in the 70s. Um, it doesn't feel too far out, but it also deals with like aliens coming to fix our planet because we've wrecked it. So that feels like it could happen. <laughs> but uh, um, if we're yeah, lucky. Just been, yeah, if we're lucky. I just hope not. But there's also um, like going on walks is something that brings me joy when I get too wrapped up in my own problems. I'll, I'll take a walk, go to the park. I like uh, scoping out vintage clothes. I go to Harold and Maude a lot. Um, that is a vintage store in Bed-Stuy that's got a really well, small collection of really well curated things. Get something every time I go in there, little hats and whatnot. Um, so, and what else? I would say some kind of like funny food thing, but popcorn doesn't really count as, is like cultural recommendation, right? It's like my main <laughs> food source, popcorn. That's sad. Like make it on the stove though. So it's like really good. Yeah. It's like not store-bought popcorn. So it's like, like elevated in a way. Yeah. Do it yourself. What's on the horizon? What's coming up? What projects are you excited about? I'm excited for Andrew Quo's edition to come out. Um, and, oh, let me pull up this other one too. I've got a few editions that are like in the works, but not quite done yet. So I don't want to talk about them, but Andrew Quoz is going to be cool because he's an artist that I worked with at K-Rock years ago and now came to me to make an edition with him. Um, so that'll be cool, but I'm, I'm going to get, um, Glenn Baldridge's out at some point, but that's going to be after the holidays. Uh, so that'll be really cool to see. And that's something that I'm publishing myself, uh, which I only do that when I have time to do my own publishing. So that's right. just. And just for a little bit of context, to... when, when you say you, you're publishing yourself, that means you're going to try and sell it yourself and market it yourself too, right? So you're, exactly. you're both the printer and the publisher. So, yes. Yeah. Just to clarify that. That's exciting. Yeah. So I I'm really glad that he's on board with it. I'm super into his work, the, the way that the word no way is always hidden in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is going to be part of that series. Great. Well, Leslie, it's been a real pleasure to catch up with you again. I've always loved spending time talking with you about your work. And it's super inspiring to to hear your story and, and see how your how Do Good Press it continues to like grow and build and and get more and more exciting with all these projects. So bravo on it all. And thanks for participating in this project. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's always a pleasure. And I'm really glad that we could make it work out. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist Find links to their online portfolios and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.